0: I pressed the button of the left-hand bell. Nothing happened. I was about to ring again when I saw I was being observed through a peephole. After a long moment, the door finally opened, and I was ushered inside by a surly-looking young man with a huge round head. Mr. Norris soon joined me, looking unwell. He greeted me, then began a tour of the flat. We were interrupted by a sudden outburst of voices from the entrance hall. That's a dirty lie. I know he's here. Mr. Norris froze. Oh, dear, he whispered. He locked the sitting-room door, and we heard a scuffling, followed by a heavy thud, as if the young man had been flung violently against the door. The stranger rattled the door. You damned swindler, he shouted. You wait till I get my hands on you! It was also very extraordinary that I forgot to feel frightened. I looked to Mr. Norris, who nodded encouragingly at me. He didn't seem at all surprised by what was taking place. The stranger soon got tired and slammed out of the flat. Mr. Norris breathed with relief. I knew it couldn't last long, he remarked. Some people seem to be utterly lacking in consideration. I laughed, and he relaxed. He unlocked the door, then introduced me to the curious young man. This was Herr Schmidt his secretary herr schmidt looked contemptuously at his employer i took an immediate dislike to schmidt and was pleased that he saw it mr norris continued our tour of the flat the place was large and well furnished and mr norris took obvious pleasure in its richness we returned to the sitting room and were served tea mr norris relapsed into silence He must be worrying about the noisy caller again. After tea, Mr. Norris showed me to his study. I have some very valuable books here, some very amusing books. I stopped to read the titles. The Girl with the Golden Whip, Miss Smith's Torture Chamber, Imprisoned at a Girl's School. This was my first glimpse of Mr. Norris's sexual tastes. ''One day I'll show you some of the other treasures of my collection,'' he said archly, ''when I feel I know you well enough.'' He then led the way into his little office. It was strangely bare. I asked pointedly, ''What is it exactly that you export and import?'' His answers were vague, and he grew flustered. ''Really, if you want to go into a lot of technical explanations, you must ask my secretary.'' i haven't the time to attend to them a few days after christmas i rang up arthur we called each other by our christian names now and suggested that we should spend sylvester abend together my dear william i shall be delighted of course to celebrate the birth of this new year with you we agreed to meet at the troika on new year's eve after some hunting i came upon arthur in a corner of the troika he was sitting at a table with another gentleman who wore an eyeglass. He introduced us. This was Baron von Pregnitz. The Baron, fishy and suave, inquired if we had ever met before, but I told him I had never had the pleasure. In another moment, when I had drunk exactly the right amount of champagne, I should have a vision. I took a sip, and now with extreme clarity, i saw what life really is it had something i remember to do with the revolving sunshade over our chairs yes i thought let them dance i am glad the intoxication proceeded and now we were all standing up what had happened it was midnight our glasses touched we made appropriate toasts and a tremendous crash exploded from the band Like a car reaching the crest of a mountain, we plunged headlong downwards into the new year. The events of the next two hours were somewhat confused. We were in a small, crowded bar. Then we were wandering through the streets. We ate ham and eggs in a first-class restaurant. Arthur had disappeared. The Baron was rather mysterious and sly about this. He had asked me to call him Kuno. Then we were driving in a taxi, alone. The baron pressed my hand and made a long speech about how wonderful it is to be young. Soon after this, I had to stop the taxi in order to be sick. Then we stopped at, it seemed, the blackest corner of the night. The baron led me through a courtyard. Then, suddenly, we were in a room full of people dancing, singing, drinking. I caught a sudden startling glimpse of Arthur's head, the wig jammed down over his left eye. I stumbled and collapsed comfortably onto a sofa, holding the upper half of a girl. I sat up, feeling suddenly quite sober. Opposite me sat Arthur, with a thin, dark girl on his lap. Except for a little hair around the base of the skull, he was perfectly bald. What on earth have you done with it? I exclaimed. Arthur pointed to the bust of Bismarck, now draped rakishly with Arthur's wig. Arthur addressed the dark girl on his knee. You're very silent, Annie. You don't sparkle this evening. Annie smiled a slight self-possessed, hoarse smile. Arthur's hand was straying abstractedly over Annie's thigh. She smacked it sharply. Oh dear, I'm afraid you're in a very cruel mood this evening. I see I shall be corrected for this. <laughs> "'Annie is a very severe young lady,' Arthur sniggered loudly. "'When I looked up again, Arthur and Annie had disappeared. "'I staggered to my feet to go look for them. "'An agonized cry came from the lighted room ahead of me. "'Nein, nine, mercy, oh dear, Hilfe, Hilfe!' "'There was no mistaking the voice. "'They had Arthur in there and were robbing him.' I might have known it we were fools to have poked our noses into a place like this i pushed the door open the first person i saw was annie she stood in the middle of the room arthur cringed on the floor at her feet he had removed most of his garments our large hostess olga towered behind him brandishing a heavy leather whip you call that clean you swine she cried Do them again this minute or I'll thrash you till you can't sit down for a week. She gave Arthur a smart cut across the buttocks. He uttered a squeal of pain and pleasure and began to brush and polish Annie's boots with a feverish haste. Mercy! Mercy! Arthur's voice was shrill and gleeful. Stop! You're killing me! Olga administered another cut. Oh! Oh! Mercy! Stop! They finally saw me. My presence did not seem to disconcert them in the least. Indeed, it appeared to add spice to Arthur's enjoyment. Oh, dear, William, save me! Goodness knows what they won't be making me do in a minute! Come in, baby, cried Olga. Just you wait. It's your turn next. I'll make you cry for mummy. She made a playful slash at me with a whip, which sent me back down outside, pursued by Arthur's delighted and anguished cries. Several hours later, I woke up on the floor. The party was over. Half a dozen people lay insensible about the dismantled room. Without money, I walked the distance home. When I arrived, my landlady greeted me with the news that Arthur had rung up already three times to know how I was. Such a nice-spoken gentleman, I always think, and so considerate. I agreed with her and went to bed. Fräulein Schroeder, my landlady, was very fond of Arthur. Over the telephone, she always addressed him as Herr Doktor, her highest mark of esteem. When Arthur came to tea with me, Fräulein Schroeder would put on her black velvet dress, which was cut low at the neck, and her string of Woolworth pearls. With her cheeks rouged and her eyelids darkened, she would open the door to him, looking like a caricature of Mary, Queen of Scots. No matter how much of a hurry he was in, Arthur always found time for a few minutes' flirtation with her. My other friends were less enthusiastic about Arthur— I introduced him to Helen Pratt, but the meeting was not a success. Helen, a very modern girl, found him old-fashioned and less than trustworthy. Not daunted by this failure, I tried Arthur on Fitzvendel After an agreeable afternoon, Fritz later warned me that he had heard Arthur was a swindler. Amused, I thanked him, and we parted pleasantly. Stage by stage, I was building up a romantic background.